0: This is the uh, workshop Conservatism, Liberalism, and Progressivism, A Christian Perspective. I was asked to speak on this and am honored to do so. My name is Matthew Stephen Bracey. I just finished my 10th year at Welch College where I'm the Vice Provost for Academic Administration. Also teach uh, things in law and theology and culture and whatever they tell me to do, that's that's what I do. Um, My background is in law and theology and I am very close to finishing my PhD. I'm in my last chapter of, of, of my dissertation, and, uh, and I'll be very thankful when it's done, and so will my <laughs> wife. Um, I'm uh, writing on uh, an aspect of the thought of a guy by the name of Edmund Burke, um, who was a 18th century Irish parliamentarian figure. At a time when many, many English were against those rebellious patriots, Edmund Burke said, well, actually they are Englishmen with certain rights that we might want to consider. He wasn't as popular as you can imagine. <clears throat> By the way, if you have any questions uh, regarding this or anything with which I can help you, I've provided my email address and I, I invite you to, to email me if you would like, welch.edu also want to point out that um, this conversation comes partly from, not in whole, but partly from a chapter that I wrote to this book I've, I've referenced here, Christians in Culture. It will be releasing uh, August 15th, and uh, you can pre-order it at the Welch College booth at the, in the convention hall. I've provided the Welch uh, College Press URL. It's also on Amazon, so you can check out these various uh, these, these various avenues if, if you want more of this. Uh, by the way, I'm really uh, proud and happy with that book. We've got uh, some really wonderful uh, endorsements. The forward is from David Dockery. We got endorsements from uh, Al Mohler, um and uh, Ralph Inlow, who was president of uh, one of our accreditation uh, bodies, and uh, a lot of other folks. Uh, so um, check that out. Well, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, by the way, uh, there are other seats uh, up here in the front for folks who are standing, if, uh, if you'd like to, to have a seat. I'm going to start off uh, with prayer, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Thank you, Lord, for your love and blessings. Thank you for this, uh, this convention. Thank you for the, the meeting of, uh, of your people. I pray that we are... Uh, Iron as iron sharpening iron. Thank you for your love in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you follow the news, or if you uh, are on social media, or if you have conversations about culture, uh, politics, morality, you're likely to hear terms like conservative, liberal, progressive, different people use these terms, it seems, in different ways. What do these things mean? Um... I'd like us to consider uh, those terms today. Part of what I'm going to do is to uh, to give us a little bit of history about where these terms came from and the and and the the movements that these that these that this history represents. But before I do that, um, you know, if you're taking notes, we're kind of in the discussing terms section. Uh, before I do any of that, though, I would like to read through a handful of Bible verses that I think have some bearing. On our discussion, <clears throat> so uh, number one, Exodus twenty twelve and Deuteronomy five sixteen. Of course, these are uh, both of these are commandment five of the ten commandments. Um, honor your father and your mother. Um, Exodus twenty says so that your days may be prolonged on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Um, Deuteronomy six 5.16 is a little more emphatic. Honor your father and your mother just as the Lord your God has commanded you so that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with uh, for you on the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Lots of people divide the Ten Commandments between the two tables of the law and they talk about how some commandments regard our vertical relationship between us and God and the others regard horizontal relationships between us and other human beings. The fifth commandment is something of a commandment that's, that's in the middle because it's both vertical and horizontal. You know, we don't theoretically uh, relate to our parents the same that we relate to just any old neighbor. So there is a, a vertical aspect to that, and, uh, but there's also a, a horizontal aspect to that as well. In some ways, it's the, the parents who teach the children um, about commandments one through four. Uh, so uh, parents are obedient to commandments one through four. Not having God's uh, bef- uh, other gods before me, not profaning the Lord, you know, the Lord's name in vain, uh, keeping the Sabbath, so on and so forth. Um, ideally, parents teach children the ways of the Lord. Uh, kids, not understanding precisely the ways of the world, uh, listen to parents who are teaching them rightly, even if they don't understand it, so that they uh, grow up being prepared to uh, to engage the world. Uh, in a good God-honoring way. I would say here that this, uh, that this commandment, the principle undergirding it, it's not just about biological fathers and mothers. It's, of course, about adoptive fathers and mothers. It's about spiritual fathers and mothers. There's a principle here about obeying uh, our forebears, those who have come before us, who are teaching us the ways of, of the Lord. This is, of course, what we see throughout the course of, of the Old Testament and the course of the Bible. So Deuteronomy six, D six, uh, verses four through seven. Here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart, and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons, and speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. So there's this this idea. of of having a body of knowledge that you then pass on. And the obedient child, of course, conserves that which has been passed on. Proverbs uh, 1, verses 7 and 8. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in a lot of Bibles, there's a new section heading, so we often divide those two verses. Of course, those are added later. But the very next verse says, listen, my son, to your father's instruction. So verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Verse 8, listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not ignore your mother's teaching. This is the pattern that we have established there in the Decalogue. And uh, if it's not explicit enough there, you have it in Proverbs 2, verses 1 and 5. This is a conditional statement. My son, if, conditional if, you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. There's this pattern. Um, faithful people listen to what God has told them and then they teach it to those who are younger. Those who are younger um, uh, seek to conserve that. You know, They grow up in the way of the Lord and then they teach that to those who are younger and so it's a generational teaching thing. A body of knowledge, a way of living that's handed down generation <clears throat> to generation. Of course, not everything that goes by the the name tradition is in and of itself good. Not everything in the past is good. Some things ought not to be conserved. And we see some of this issue uh, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, but just hitting on a few verses. Um, The Pharisees, and this, this is Mark 7, by the way, verse 5 and then verse 8. The Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, "Why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands?" And then Jesus says, after several verses, "Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So not all traditions are good. Not all things that have been handed down." are in accordance with the commandments of God. We see the same thing in Colossians 1. Paul, see to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. By the way, these kinds of verses have suggested well, maybe the Christian in some ways is conservative, but maybe the Christian in other ways is liberal because we're trying to liberate ourselves from um, you know, the human traditions of, uh, of the world. And, uh, and maybe even Christians in a manner of speaking can be progressive because we're trying to progress past these things. Some Christians have gone down that line. I'm gonna uh, be a bit, bit critical of that way of thinking as you'll see in a minute. But what I'm saying now is, um, these kinds of verses lead some Christians to Christians to, to play those games. So we have those, Mark 7, uh, Colossians 1, on the one hand. On the other hand, we have 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold on to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So we have some traditions that we need to not hold on to, not conserve, We need to change, and we have some traditions that we most surely need to conserve, or in this case, stand firm in. Jude 1.3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you, here it is, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. The faith that was handed down, and what is the faith? Well, it's what we believe, and it's how we act. It's our um, uh, beliefs, and it is our our behavior so uh these are some bible verses just to get the conversation started uh before we get into a conversation of of where we're at uh, now so conservatism liberalism and progressivism what i want to do is just briefly try to briefly give you a little bit of uh of a historical perspective on where these distinctions came from historically. I believe by understanding uh, where this conversation starts, we can better understand what these movements really are all about. By the way, uh, words mean something. Words mean something. Uh, They don't just mean whatever we want them to mean. Uh, You know, uh, a male is a male. You know, uh, a female is, like, words mean something. They have their histories, uh, they have an integrity to them, and I think the same is true with words like conservative, liberal, and progressive. So here's a little bit of history as we work our way into defining these terms. Um, I I would say starting in the 1600s, certainly by the 1700s, you have this thing called the enlightenment that happens in Western history. Sometimes I go to the 1600s, you might call this era the proto-enlightenment. It's just this period of time before the Enlightenment. But what is the Enlightenment? Uh, Some people have summarized the Enlightenment by saying it's this intellectual movement in Europe, in the West, uh, whereby people began to get at knowledge in a way different, distinct from the way that it had been done before. As it turns out, the people living in the medieval period didn't refer to themselves as living in the Dark Ages. They didn't think that they lived in the Dark Ages. Rather, um, it was people of the Enlightenment who said, look at us, aren't we so smart? We are enlightened. By the way, there's something rather presumptuous, perhaps even a bit pompous about that way of thinking. I'm enlightened, you know, (laughs) unlike these people who came uh, before me. So they, of course, called the people who came before them people who were living in the Dark Ages. And uh, so what they said is the way that you get at knowledge is not necessarily through um, uh, receiving what people would hand down to you, a body of knowledge. How you get at knowledge is, uh, is through uh, the means of rationalism, so just using your, your mind, and, uh, and empiricism. Can you, can you test it? Is it empirical? Is there, are there empirical proofs? And, and by the way, uh, hard thinking and, and you know, science and things does give us a lot of good knowledge. The problem, of course, is that it's not the only form of knowledge. <clears throat> so uh, by way of example, there's a figure you've heard of probably in the 1600s by the name of John Locke. And, uh, and so he writes a book called The Reasonableness of Christianity. And his goal there is to talk about how Christianity is reasonable, it's rational, it doesn't violate um, commonsensical ways of, of thinking. You may say, well, that sounds all good. Here's the problem. He, um, as he defines it, he says the doctrine of original sin is not in keeping with rational discourse. So he would deny the doctrine of original sin. Uh, and we could talk about some of his other um, heterodox or even heretical views on things. But, but he considers himself a Christian, but this is where things are leading. He's, you know, he, of course, is also uh, well known for talking about the mind being a blank slate or some, he used the phrase empty cabinets. There's nothing there which had uh, uh, ethical implications and psychological implications, but as it concerns us as Christians, you're not born a sinner, is, is, is where he, he took that. Um, so you know, th- there are people go forward a century or so, and there are people building on what he's, he's handed down. But then there are people going, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, not so fast, uh, essentially. And, uh, and so on the one hand, you've got somebody like John Locke. On the other hand, a century later, you've got someone like Edmund Burke. And Edmund Burke is the figure I told you about earlier. And he's saying, among other things, uh, actually, we don't need to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. Um, uh, first of all, John Locke, you're, you're not right in, in these ways. And, 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 uh, and, and second of all, uh, there's lots in the past, um, there's lots in the tradition that we need to conserve, that we need to remember. So let's just, you know, cooler jets, <clears throat> so to speak. So that's the 1700s. Um, Burke's years, he lives from 1729 until 1797. Uh, somewhat contemporary with Burke is another name you've probably heard of Jean Jacques Rousseau. Uh, he writes a treatise on education called Emile. I've been reading Emile recently you say why are you doing that because I'm writing a dissertation on Burke and I'm trying to understand his world exactly. Uh, reading meal by Rousseau he says among other things that um, when you're educating people you don't really need to, what you need to do first is, uh, is teach people to think well and to think critically uh, but, but, and you may say, well, that's not so bad, but, but what that means is don't teach them about the past, at least for a, a long time. And the reason you don't teach them about the past is because if you just learn what's right, it gets in the way of critical thinking. Rather, the, the content of the things that you would learn in the past, um, it's better to let people work through that on their own. So in, in effect, we're reinventing the, the knowledge wheel. Every generation, and by the way, if you on your own decide that a certain thing is not perhaps worth uh, pursuing or it doesn 't make sense, well then you just throw that out. But what happens if that thing that you don 't quite agree with has been what people have held for five thousand years as being right um, just because you don 't under- it 's just a different disposition it 's not a disposition of respect towards the past it 's a disposition of well suspicion, skepticism and uh, He does say at a place in that book that this business of putting other people first is not really where you want to start. Where you want to start is by considering yourself. So you start with the self and then you work out. Um, He has this concept called the noble savage, and he says what's created all these problems in our society today is, well, society and all these uh, traditions that have been handed down. What we really need to return to, he says, is a state of nature Or we're all savages, but he says there's nobility in being a savage because you look out for yourself, there's none of this inequality from society. No one's making more than anybody else. No one's over anybody else. We're all perfectly equal uh, in every possible way. So on the one hand, you've got Burke here and he's criticizing Locke who came before him in many ways. And then you've got his contemporary and uh, Rousseau and he's criticizing Rousseau Uh, for some of his ideas, and we'll talk a little bit more about them. Well, Rousseau, some people would call Rousseau liberal, but other people would call Rousseau uh, progressive Uh, because there's a part of Rousseau that says part of what the past can give you is a rule uh, with which you can, that you can violate and assert yourself. By the way, uh, I'm not exaggerating, I recently read an article uh, in a journal uh, from a self-proclaimed progressive, and he said it would be better uh, to call us transgressives, not progressives. And you may be thinking, is that like a sexual thing, like, like trans? That may be part of it. Uh, he said that, uh, that actually though, he says, at the heart of being a progressive is transgressing whatever law someone has given you to follow. But, uh, but, but if you're going to assert yourself, You can't submit yourself to some rule, some law, some principle, some tradition that somebody has handed down to you. That's very much here in the spirit of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Well, move forward to the 1800s, and um, you've got Karl Marx. He's often associated with progressivism, socialism, these kinds of things. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. You also have in the 1800s a guy named John Stuart Mill, who's all about the freedom of the self, and he's more in the liberal camp. So this is just a little bit of history um, that informs our discussion. What are these isms? You know, I've given you some of the representatives. There's this, there's this intellectual philosophical debate. Uh, what is our proper understanding of the past? What's our proper understanding of who man is? And what's our proper understanding of the future and the way that God and religion works into these things? So a conservative clearly is going to respect the tradition in some ways, uh, not in all ways, but in many ways, uh, a, a conservative. They're trying to conserve what's been handed down. Uh, the conservative philosophically, uh, you know, is going to be open to, um, to, to, you know, instruction from the Lord and these kinds of things in the context of the West. If we were talking about somewhere else, it would look a little bit different. A liberal, by the way, a liberal is not necessarily opposed to religion. Uh, but if you think about John Locke, you think about John Stuart Mill, if you know much about their biographies, they are in their way religious, but they're not the kinds of folks you'd sit by in Sunday school, you know? Like, they're not orthodox. That said, there are many, many uh, liberals uh, who are just atheists, so religion is not necessary uh, to being a liberal, but it's, it's possible, but it looks different. The theory of man, by the way, um, to these, these first liberals uh, is way off. I mean, tabula rasa, you know, blank slate, that's, that's very very different from from what uh, from what human uh, uh, from what Christians hold uh, regarding human beings. Um, you know, if you are a, a more empiricist leaning liberal, uh, then what you're going to hold uh, is that uh, man is fundamentally comprised of material stuff, if not exclusively by material stuff. As Christians, we would hold that that man is comprised of material stuff and immaterial stuff. So it's just a different view of man. And, uh, and we could trace you know these differences out with progressives as well. Uh, Rousseau is much more hostile toward, uh, toward religion. Marx is clearly hostile toward religion. Um, however, if I were to define these isms, uh, what would they, in light of all of this, in light of you know the Bible stuff we've gone through, in light of this history we've gone through, what are these isms really about? Well, first of all, conservatism, liberalism, and progressivism is not simply about politics. That's largely the context we hear these words in. uh, Rather, it's a disposition relating to life. It's a sensibility about life that touches on on everything, touches about how we view the past, touches about how we view religion, um, family, work, the arts, technology, economics, sports. Um, One philosopher, uh, late philosopher Roger Scruton, said that conservatism is about, quote, our whole way of being. It's it's part of the fabric of one's worldview. Let's think about it this way. Conservatives, liberals, and progressives each have an idea of the common good. But they differ very much in how they define the common good according to their distinct theological and philosophical commitments. As I've said, Um, They also differ in their dispositions toward the past, and toward change, and toward the future. A conservative, at root, seeks to conserve, it's in the word conservative, a conservative seeks to conserve the wisdom of the past, not the non-wisdom of the past, the wisdom of the past, yet also recognizes the need for sensible change amid new circumstances and injustices. So the conservative is not against change, it's not about adaptation, but it's about conserving this great body of knowledge that's been handed down and, uh, and seeing uh, what these principles can teach us for the present day, and it doesn't seek to conserve the old stuff, uh, the bad stuff, rather. It does seek to conserve old stuff, not the bad stuff. By the way, a, a, conservative, a conservative-minded, say, 10-year-old will obey good parents even if he doesn't understand good parents you know son do such and such why well don't ask me why i'll tell you later just do it you know okay well like you don't have to understand it in the moment to do it if you trust the authority you're submitting to um we don't have all the answers to god's leading for example but we submit to his will so you can submit to an authority. There's nothing wrong with submitting to an authority. In fact, it's quite good to submit to authority. Jesus himself submits to an authority. You know, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, God, please, this cup of judgment that's coming my way, I'd like this to pass, Father, but not as I will as you will. You know, he submits himself to. So that a conservative seeks to conserve. Someone asked me uh, recently, what if, what if there's bad stuff in the past? Do you seek to conserve? No, you don't seek to conserve the bad. You seek to change The bad although the manner of change is important as we'll see the liberal it's in the word the liberal emphasizes liberty liberty to the disregard of prudent limitations on what a person or society should or should not do at the heart of a conservative is conserving something at the heart of a liberal is liberty but the earliest liberals how did they define liberty how do they define liberty? Traditionally, uh, the liberal defines liberty as the freedom to do what you, as an individual, want to do. The conservative says that's not how I define liberty. Uh, the, The conservative, the Christian conservative, says that some liberty is what Paul calls slavery to sin. In the early 2000s, there was a Supreme Court decision, Lawrence versus Texas, and there was a a law in the state of Texas that said that sodomy was uh, against the law, and uh, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court in, I think it was 2003, said that this violates the Constitution. Uh, Think about that. Laws against sodomy had not violated the Constitution for over 200 years and suddenly it violates the concept, uh, just like that. But anyway, Justice Kennedy wrote the uh, majority opinion and essentially what he said is uh, the state has no interests about what goes on uh, in the privacy of somebody's bedroom. You're, f- you're free to do whatever you want to there. That's the ethic of liberty, the, the freedom to pursue whatever it is you want to pursue. <coughs> I would say the conservative also values liberty but believes that liberty is subject to the limitations of truth and morality. So, we don't believe we're free to do what we ought not to do, or those things that are bad for us. You know, a child is not free to do whatever he wants to. There are some uh, things that violate truth, that violate morality. You know, you're not free to do that. And by the way, we all intuitively know that. You're free to drive a car, here's a license, you're free to drive a car, but that doesn't mean you're free to drive the car in any old way that you want. You can't drive 95 and a 30 when children are around, otherwise they take that liberty away, they take that license away. The conservative views liberty as a means for human flourishing, whereas the liberal views liberty as an end in itself, even if that end leads to sinful license which spells personal and societal disaster, which is what sin does, by the way. Amen. Modern day usages of the terms conservatism and liberalism often uh, get confused. Um, for example, people often define conservative as someone who upholds traditional morality and believes in small government and probably votes Republican, whereas they might see a liberal as someone who's open-minded about morality and affirms a bigger role for government and probably votes a Democrat. That's how we tend to use the the, the phrase today. Sometimes people associate uh, conservatism with right-wing politics, liberalism with left-wing politics. I hope what I'm communicating is that it's not quite that simple historically and philosophically. Um, sometimes we, you know, we distinguish liberals from classical liberals, but I'm just calling a classical liberal just a straight-up liberal because I mean it's right there in the word. Um, you know, the so-called people who are liberals who believe in really big government don't believe in liberty too much because they want the government to, to, to rule your lives kind of thing. Um, what's a progressive? A- again, in the word, a progressive elevates progress to the detriment of tradition. In popular usage, people use the term liberal when they probably, properly mean the word progressive. A conservative, by the way, just like a conservative believes in true liberty, a, a conservative does believe in true progress, uh, but it views it as the progress of history, so you're building on history, uh, whereas a progressive is, um, sees progress as progress being away from history. We're turning from the tradition. The tradition is the problem. We're progressing from the, uh, you know, away from the tradition as opposed to of the tradition. So um, a conservative respects tradition but seeks its prudent reformation when it exhibits injustice. On the contrary, the progressive, and sometimes the liberal too, um, they often pursue violent revolution to overthrow tradition. So there's this means of change business. Some people have said that conservatives see uh, value what's called evolutionary change rather than revolutionary change. Um, Some people have contrasted uh, reformational change as opposed to revolutionary change. Um, but, you know, reform, you're building on the good that come before. Revolution, you're just burning the whole thing to the ground and starting over. So the, the, the means by which you do these things is, in, is important. Obviously, we've not gotten to any of the canons, and I've got 20 minutes left. <clears throat> <laughs> I, do, uh, I do want to share a little bit of history about the, the, the phrase left and right. You may find this interesting. You might wonder where the word left and right come from. All of this stuff comes from this period of time in the Enlightenment, yes sir. Just a quick question. Is some of what you're discussing today in this uh, seminar is it in your book that's gonna come out? It's all out of the book. It's all it's yes, it is. Very much. Great. Yeah I've got like thirty pages on this stuff. Um, (laughs) so uh, so check it out, please. Uh, by the way, it's never too early to Christmas gifts for stocking (laughs) stuffers. (laughs) French Revolution. French Revolution, late-night 1700s. Um, the radicals are just horrible uh, to the nobility, to the priests, to the religious folk. They erect an altar to reason. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy time. Um, England is trying to figure out its disposition toward the French Revolution. And uh, the Tories... Uh, the more traditional party says this, re- this, this French Revolution, no good. The Whigs are the more uh, left party um, or, or, you know, uh, the less traditional party. And they early on, they're very much for uh, the French Revolution. Um, so you've got Parliament there in England and the Whigs sit on the left of Parliament and the Tories sit on the right. So... The traditional view comes to be called the right because of where the Tories were sitting in Parliament. And the non-traditional view comes to be seen as the left. Think about the fact that if the Tories were sitting on the left, we could be talking about how leftism is really the way to go today. Isn't that odd? Just kind of one of those accidents of history. Let me see if I can do a little bit of justice to this stuff. <clears throat> in the 1950s, uh, there was a, an author by the name of Russell Kirk, uh, a philosopher of conservatism. You know, This is the decade after FDR has been voted on four times. The court has been effectively stacked. There's a resurgence in, in conservative thinking in the 1950s, Russell Kirk is a part of that. And so he, studying all this stuff, puts together 10 canons or 10 principles of conservatism. I doubt we're going to get through all 10 of them. But he puts together 10 canons of, uh, of conservatism. And so I've used those 10 canons as something of a um, way to lead this discussion. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at what conservatives do with each of these things and just compare and contrast them to, to liberals and and, uh, and progressives. Canon one, belief in an enduring transcendent moral order. Conservatives believe, Western conservatives, in our context, conservatives believe that there's a an objective moral order that, that is transcendent Uh, to us. Morality is not left simply to the changing whims of individuals or the changing whims of groups of individuals, but it's rooted in an objective reality. That's one of the scary things about being a liberal or progressive today, is the thing that's high morality today is canceled tomorrow. Uh, In the words of William Ernest Henley, liberal individualism uh, says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is quite a, a distinct uh, disposition uh, to what conservatives believe. Um, some liberals believe in natural law, they define it a little bit differently, but they put themselves at the, the, you know, the center. Uh, progressives, by and large, don't accept any kind of natural law. It's, it's a much more atheistic uh, movement. <clears throat> Canon two, uh, adherence to custom, convention, and continuity. Uh, this is a way of speaking about the tradition. There are customs that, that were taught there are conventions that were taught, and insofar as these things are rooted in um, truth uh, and, and things that are good and true and beautiful, these are things that we should establish continuity with the tradition uh, uh, about. Um, this canon pushes us to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of our predecessors. Um, it, uh, it's this honor of father and mother business. Uh, there's that famous passage from C.S. Lewis where he talks about the problems of chronological snobbery, assuming that one age is better than, than, than the age before it and so on and so forth. This is the flip of that. It's not, uh, in different ways, um, no one age is better or worse. It depends on the specific thing you're talking about. Uh, each age has its, its pros and its cons. To be clear, as I've said, the conservatives doesn't uphold the past indiscriminately. Um, but, um, but it does uphold those things that accord with the transcendent moral order. Um, <clears throat> insofar as things from the past needs to change, conservatives tend to support evolutionary change, as I said, slow over revolutionary change, uh, because change in a society, think about how complex a society is, think about how complex a civilization is. If you just burn it to the ground, um, you, you throw out a lot of good things that took a long, 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 long time to build. Uh, you might think of change, even, even change that needs to happen like right now, you might think of change as a thing that's, that has to be very, very, very careful. Um, you might think of change in a society uh, like you do surgery. You know, Surgery on the body is not something you want to rush. Even if it's something really life-threatening, you've got to be very careful in the way that you perform surgery because if you go too far an inch here or too far an inch there, you nick something, this is not good. This is not good. And, uh, and, and uh, there's this, uh, uh, Kirk says that civilization is like a complex system of roots. The innovator who chops abruptly at the tree of convention never knows how near the taproot of the tree he's hacking. So that the destroyers of custom demolish more than they know or desire. So the irresponsible hewing off tradition may amount to more than a felled tree, it may result in the death of a civilization, in which case the cure is worse than the disease. Conservatives seek to cure civilization from its diseases, but rather than swinging and slashing, they aim carefully to prune the ecosystem of civilization so that the disease is removed and the life is preserved. Canon three is the principle of prescription. Prescription is simply the application of those customs and conventions that, uh, that the past has taught uh, that are good. I could say more there, but for the sake of time, I will uh, move us along. The principle of prudence. <clears throat> this is wisdom. I feel like I've mentioned this already. Um, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, but the means by which uh, the Lord has instructed that the fear of him would be taught is through parents. And uh, the underlying principle is through those who are older than us, our elders. Uh, older folks teaching younger folks uh, the ways of the Lord, the way of wisdom. Kirk says, Providence has taught humanity through thousands of years experience and mediation a collective wisdom. By the way, to disregard a thousand years worth of experience isn't simply to neglect uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, it is to reject the work of God in those times. Yes. The liberal, of course, and certainly the progressive, has uh, much less patience with with the past. Both liberalism and progressivism may characterize tradition as oppressive and enslaving when it, per, it impedes the pursuit of individual and or social license. Example, I wanna live this way. Tradition's not letting me live this way. Tradition is oppressing me. But what if the way that you want to live is really bad? It, it, it uh, results in your uh, you know, downfall and, and because no individual is an island, but we're all part of a society, uh, no individual sin is merely an individual sin because it has repercussions in the broader society. Jean-Jacques Rousseau said the exact opposite of what Christians hold. He said, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. That's the kind of the opposite of what Christians hold. We hold that we're born as slaves to sin, you know. Um, canon 5 is the principle of variety. <clears throat> Conservatives hold, by the way, Canon 1 is about say God. Canons 2 through 4. Canons 2 and 3 are about the past and our, our, our relationship to the past. Canon 4 is about taking canons 1 through 3 and applying it in the present day. Canon 5 and canon 6 uh, moves us to uh, a theory of human beings. So, canon 5, principle of variety. Humankind Conservatives recognize that humankind is comprised of distinct uh, men and women who are different from one another. You you wouldn't think that would sound so radical. But the Christian, and, and the Christian conservative maintains that these differences result from the purposeful design of the creator. So the conservative is not threatened by the fact that we're different And it doesn't necessarily see that as being unjust. You know what? Some of you probably are better basketball players than I am. God made me 5'6". That's not an injustice. It's not an inequality, you know, in the way it's used today. It's how God made me. Uh, Or to say it differently, I'm 5'6", and you're not 5'6". And there's an inequality there, and that's okay. There are some ways in which we're not equal. We're not the same. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you are men, some of you are women. Difference, distinction, and that's okay. Um, the liberal though, who, who uh, at the root of, of, of the movement is about the liberty of the self, says that if I'm born a man, but I don't wanna be a man, then I'll have to be a man, or whatever. And the same with with, uh, progressivism. You might call this natural distinction. Uh, Some of you have heard of Abraham Kuyper. Uh, He said there's not one square inch on this earth that Christ has not declared mine. He says there is no equality of persons. His usage of the word equality here means there's nobody who's the same as anybody else. That's what he means. Everywhere one man is more powerful than the other by his personality, by his talent, by his circumstances. It's just the fact of life, and it's what God has given us. What does this mean for social order? So now we begin to work from how we are to what this means for, say, a society. What does this mean for social order? Well, it means we play different roles in society, and those roles are different. And that's okay. This is... What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about the society we call the church, and he says, in effect, that some play the role of an ear, and some play the role of a mouth, and some play the role of a... And that's fine, because that's based on what God had for us. King David, the prophet Jeremiah, the apostle Paul, even Jesus himself, acknowledged that different people will bear different fruit and receive different rewards according to their free choices. So what the principle of variety means in application uh, is it means that there's going to be a lot of difference in groups of people, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Here's a group of people, 30 students in a class, and I give them all the same test. And this guy over here studied for five hours, and this guy over here studied for five minutes. They don't get the same grade. They don't get the same grade because they apply themselves differently. People in society apply themselves differently and they get different things. Rousseau's point is that humankind could eliminate material inequalities and societal injustices by returning to a hypothetical pre-society when there was no, uh, the state of nature in which there was no order, no division, no classes. He points to the, the noble savage. Of course, the noble savage is rather ignoble You've read Lord of the Flies. There is no society. There's just children running around. And what do they do? They kill each other. They kill each other. This is, this is who we are in and of ourselves. And by the way, even if you get rid of all order and you just start with everybody equal, take any group of people, somebody is going to become the de facto leader. It's just the way that it goes. We've got to move. Well, the principle of imperfectibility... Uh, the conservative holds that uh, you can't perfect society, at least in this life. The liberal, though, believes in blank slate. So there, the liberal, and certainly the progressive, uh, through big government, uh, believes that we can work toward so something of a utopia. Um, but you might say the conservative is a, um, a realist. There's more I, I could say here. By the way, uh, J.D. Vance, he's now a, is he a senator now? When he wrote this book, he was just an author, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, and, uh, and he said, uh, concerning the issue of poverty, liberals often say, uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Progressives say, let the experts handle it. J.D. Vance says that neither uh, of these solutions work uh, to real problems, and he said uh, real problems are, are solved uh by traditional work ethics that people hand down, but also supporting people. So there's a little bit of work, but there's also a little bit of support from families, and well, we could talk more about this. All right, close link between freedom and property. (sighs) Uh, Property is the fruit of one's labor. That's what I mean by property. We use our freedom in different ways. There's a close link between freedom and, and property. If you use your freedom, to um, you know, buy video games and marijuana and potato chips, and you live in your mom's basement, um, you know. But somebody else uses their freedom uh, and their property to, to do more responsible things, and then you know, after ten years, you got one person over here and one person over there. Uh, you know, a progressive is going to say, ah, inequality. This is not not right. This is not fair. Um, the, the the conservative is 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 going to say, well, no, there's there's, you know, uh, you get the talents, you know, and you got you know some people do much and some people do little and and um, but uh, as it relates to progressives and government, um, you know, particularly with progressives, they uh, they want to take property from the people who have earned it, but uh, but you, you you get into some real trouble there. Well, uh, communities ought to be voluntary and they ought to be local. We could talk more uh, there. Uh, By the way, the freedom to join a community um, means... I'm looking at the time. I've got a lot of thoughts swimming in my head. Canon 9 is the principle of restraint (laughs) on power and passion. Um, It's okay to be restrained. One is not put upon and oppressed because they're restrained. John Knox said that uh, if a fit overtakes a father and he tries to slay his children, well, then it's good and proper to put him in chains until the fit passes. Um, You know, in the West and in modern-day America, we think that restraint is a bad thing. Uh, Restraint may very much be a good thing. The fact that my mama restrain me from going out with uh, those kids I thought were cool when I was in middle school, that was a good restraint. And in retrospect, I'm really glad she did that. Well, Canon 10 is balanced between permanence and change. The conservative does believe in change, um, but, uh, but it's change of the bad things, not change of the good things. Well, let's take a few minutes. What are your questions? I should have given more time for questions, but here we are. You read, uh, Live Not, has anyone read Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreyer. He talks about the social credit system in uh, China, I believe, in that book. I'm sorry I didn't leave more time for questions. I would, uh, you know, there's like 30 pages of this in uh, chapter 3 of this book that you can pre-order. So please, please pre-order that book. By the way, you can pre-order for tw- uh, uh, it for, it's reduced from its... Uh, the, the sale price once it comes out is twenty nine ninety nine, but it's twenty five bucks for pre order So you might, you might pre-order, you might pre-order that. Uh, the conclusion of my presentation, by the way, is uh, I, I don't want the baggage of, of of the way that people characterize conservatives in the news. Uh, that's a way of talking that's not necessarily consistent with uh, with the tradition and uh, with, with the philosophical tradition and the history of this stuff. Um, I do believe that the sensibilities of conservatism is uh, more in keeping and more in line with the basic Christian sensibility. Um, the, uh, the, the, the philosophical undergirdings of, of the liberal and the progressive is not as in keeping as the, as the conservative. Um, and I don't think that we can just kinda play language games because I think the word liberalism and progressivism uh, it doesn't mean just whatever you want it to mean. Well, we're just liberating ourselves from the bad past. That's not what it means. Like, like words don't mean just whatever we want them to mean. They actually mean something. They have a history. They have an origin. So I'm going to hold that we as Christians are conservatives. Amen. We honor our fathers and mothers. We hold fast to the good traditions that have been handed down. We seek to conserve that which is good. And we seek to, uh, to change that which is not good. But we're conserving the past, building on the past for uh, a better tomorrow, for a better future. And one day when Jesus returns, of course... All things will be made new.